Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Michael Inflict. Hello, everyone. And on this podcast, we're going to be talking about controversies in science on campus and beyond. And while we do that, we are going to be drinking beers. So, Mickey, do you want to tell the audience what we're drinking today? Yes, I would. Uh, this is a uh, actually one of my favorite beers uh, of the current moment. It's called Prophets and Nomads. It's a beer by, I believe they're called Arts and Crafts Brewing, uh, based out of Hamilton, Ontario, so uh, a little bit south of Toronto. Um, and this is a goze or goze, I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced. It's a sour beer, um, a variety that I'm particularly fond of. And I think I've gotten many faculty members at the the University of Toronto in the social personality area uh, to get into it as well. So this is one of my favorites. Uh, what do you think, you all? Uh, it's pronounced Kreuze. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Kreuze. Right. There you go. There you go. Um, it's very tasty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's got, what does it say here? It's got uh, pink Himalayan salt and coriander. Wow. Um, and I just taste the tartness. I don't, I don't taste the coriander. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> all right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Let me do a couple of, of you know, house cleaning. Things. Oh, I already forgot. <laughs> Go on. So I think the first thing is, um, uh, so if you like the music uh, from the intro, that was uh, my brother-in-law, Joshua Ball, uh, who composed that for us. And uh, he was gracious enough to uh, do that for us. And we're thankful. Um, so uh, give him a little plug there. And the other thing is, um, I think we owe our audience an explanation. Like why the hell are, you know, UL and Mickey uh, why are we doing a podcast? Uh, we, we, I know we like to hear ourselves talk. Yes, yes, Seth, that's true. But why are we doing this? Well, um, I think that we have uh, interesting things to say about uh, controversies in science on campus and beyond. Um, now, I feel like I just restated that we like to hear ourselves talk. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Do we have a better reason than that? Uh, hmm. Well, I mean, maybe this is not a completely legitimate reason, but... Uh, you know, so I'm a, I, I like podcasts. I listen to podcasts a lot. Uh, so I commute into uh, the Scarborough campus where both of us work. And it used to be really painful until I started listening to podcasts. And I find it really enjoyable now. Um, and more and more, there are psychologists who are kind of getting into this uh, podcasting world. So I listen to The Black Goat all the time. I know I think you're a fan as well. Same. Um, I don't listen to it very often, but I know a lot of people like uh, Very Bad Wizards. You're a regular guest there. You're practically a third host, I think. Well, you Fourth know, host after Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom would disagree, <laughs> I was going to say. Right. Um, but there are a bunch out there, and, and, and to me at least, it just sounds like these guys and, and, and uh, just having lots of fun. Um, and uh, I want to kind of join in on the action. And, and I think we have a slightly different take. Well, number one, we're drinking beer, um, but also... Um, I think we'll be discussing maybe some politics, some current events, uh, whether it be kind of broad current events or kind of more local to psychology and academia, um, and getting our own take on things. That's right. So we'd like to do things that are like a little more topical, a little more events driven um, than some of the podcasts that we're both fans of. And we think we have something to add there. Yeah. And why are we drinking beers? I think just we like drinking beers. Also, we might get drunk and say something dumb. Yes, that's uh, I, my, my fear, but also uh, perhaps a goal. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the dream, Mickey. Yes, and four beers. I mean, that's, I think, reasonable. Two beers. So we'll get maybe two beers per person. Yeah, maybe yeah. occasionally we'll have a little more. All right, so our topic for today um, is, uh, is free speech being threatened on campus. Um, it's an interesting question, uh, a topical one, uh, because there seems to be some debate around it. Um, on the one hand, you've got uh, people claiming that we're in a crisis. Uh, free speech, which is you know a, a high value uh, in Western society and across many cultures, um, is being threatened, and being threatened in particular on college campuses, where this is, you know the the place where people, you know, uh, go to expand their minds, go to hear uh, opinions that maybe they didn't hear of, or maybe they're even opposed to in advance. And some people are claiming uh, these th this cherished value is being threatened. So we're here to kind of weigh in and ask ourselves, you know, is it is it true? Is it is there a free speech crisis uh, on campuses? Um, so I mean, uh, well, what do you think? Let me go start right there. Well. So I think we're going to get to some data soon, uh, w which I think will be really helpful. But I think first we need to define 
when we're talking about free speech on campus, what does that mean exactly? Because I think people use that term in different ways, mean different things by it. And that can be part of the reason that sometimes I feel like people are really talking past each other when when they debate this issue. Yeah, that's a good point. So what, what does that mean, free speech? What is being threatened exactly? Um, I mean, I think people can say what they want on campus and it's not going to be someone kind of monitoring their private speech. I think the issue is more with uh, public invited talks. And there has been at least a lot of uh, attention given to a a whole spate of uh, talks in the past, let's say, few years that have been either, you know, threatened with cancellation, actually canceled, people being deplatformed. Um, people being threatened of deplatformed, uh, I mean, all kinds of you know crazy things going on. And we can maybe the best way to start is really giving some examples. Right. So this is the example I think that you're the kind of example that you're most likely to hear about in the news, um, just because it involves things that are kind of more newsworthy, right? So if I feel inhibited about giving a, maybe a controversial political opinion as a student or as a teacher, that's not really a newsworthy event in the way that. Uh, let's say a group of protesters showing up and trying to prevent somebody from giving a talk is, right? So this is what you're hearing about quite a bit. Maybe the most famous example um, of these campus protests uh, over speakers gone violent is Charles Murray at Middlebury, right? Where he's obviously been controversial for quite a while um, for his views on race and IQ. Uh, He was at Middlebury College in Vermont actually to speak about his new book, which is not about those topics at all, but he has a uh, you know, bad reputation, um, and some students and faculty felt that he should not have been invited, and they actually did manage to shut his talk down. And in the aftermath of this protest, there was actually, uh, it got violent, and uh, his faculty uh, sponsor, I guess? Chaperone. Chaperone, right. The, the woman uh, who was a Middlebury faculty member who was with him, who was sort of overseeing his visit, was actually injured had to go to the emergency room, had kind of lasting health consequences from, uh, I guess it was diagnosed eventually as a concussion. So something that for her, like, you know, certainly had like serious consequences, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, I think the most egregious example where someone was, you know, completely deplatformed, you know, was, you know, was was talked over, screamed over, and it actually became violent. Um, And... You know, whether you uh, agree or disagree with what Charles Murray, Murray has said in the past or what he was going to say in that in that speech, I'm not sure this is a, a model for what, you know, we'd like to see in a democratic and free society. And I think, you know, you know, if that is actually a trend, that is worrying. Um, I guess the question, though, is, is this indeed a trend? Right. So there's an organization called Fire.org that has a database of disinvitations, um, both attempted and successful. So we will put this link in the show notes, actually. Uh, It's a really cool resource because you can see every disinvitation attempt, whether it's from the right or from the left, and uh, a brief summary of what what happened, what the basis of the objection was, and so on. So if I look at 2018, as as we record this, it's uh, May 6, 2018. Uh, The fire.org database records five disinvitation attempts. Um, Of those five, uh, four were successful. Uh, So is that, I mean, is that an epidemic? (laughs) Is that enough to worry about? Can we repeat that number, please? That's five total attempts in 2018, four of which were successful. Okay, so before I laugh at that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, 2018 is not even five months old. So right. what about, do you have numbers for 2017? Yeah, so for 2017, uh, 35 attempts. And let me see how many of those were actually successful. 19 successful. So 20 attempts and 19 successful. 20, uh, sorry, uh, 19 successes out of 35 attempts. 35 attempts. I mean, I think probably the more important numbers the 35, right? That, that, that there are 35 right. groups of people who would think it's a wise thing to shut uh, or disinvite a speaker down. To me, this is, you know, I mean, what's the base rate? What, you know, how many speeches, how many talks are there at all the universities and colleges in the United States? Thousands? Yeah, so there's, I think, four, 5,000 colleges and universities in the U.S., um, let's say conservatively that on average they host 10 speakers per year. 
at least. I mean, at least, right? So that's a low number. Yeah, very low number. Yeah. Um, and then so okay, so we have you know four thousand ten. So you know forty and 40, between forty and fifty thousand. I was I was gonna say four hundred. My math is really bad. <laughs> <laughs> You've only had half a beer. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so uh, I mean, that's you know that's a blip. That's that's not much. That's not a lot. Um, and so um, to me, that's not. I'm not to worry about it. I mean. And then I guess, I guess, you know, when I hear that number, I can't help but be a little bit angry, to be honest with you, because I would have assumed that number is so much higher than that. I mean, the amount of ink that has been spilled on um, free speech crisis, uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, you would think there's a lot of them. I mean, so, um, I mean, there, there have been op-eds written in The New York Times by powerful columnists. There, there are powerful speakers. So, you know, recently, this would be, I guess, one of the five, I guess it would be four uh, in 2018. So Christina Hoff Summers, uh, the so-called factual feminist, um, she was supposed to give a talk at Lewis and Clark Law School, I believe it was a month or two ago. Um, and she gave maybe a third or a quarter of her talk and she was shouted down. Uh, um, it looked bad. I mean, someone videotaped this. It looked, you know, it looked bad um she was just trying to debate and you know and i think her point her, what she's trying to say it, you know, i understand why people find it objectionable i find some of it object objectionable um but at least you know hear her out but the point is that um it got so much attention it got lots of news media uh, one would think this is like happening all the time every single week or one would at least think that christina hoff summers every single talk that she gives is being shouted down so i follow uh christina hoff summers on twitter and i've seen her you know she posts her schedule of talks and i've only heard of one actually being uh shouted out at least in the past few months maybe there have been more previously or maybe i'm not fully paying attention but um there were at least a handful and there's one that that you know where she was shouted down yeah. So she's actually not on this list, which raises the interesting mm. question of like how you code this stuff, right? Right. So these are disinvitations. She wasn't disinvited. They just made it really hard for her uh, to give her talk, right? So you might say like, well, this is an undercount. You're you're not uh, counting things that are that are happening that are bad. It's possible. Oh, that's, so that makes it more interesting. So this is yeah. uh, if it's just purely this. Is there a database out there for quote unquote deep platforms? Not speakers? that I know of. Uh, so that makes it a bit, you know, makes it a bit harder to judge. Um, I mean, how many of those are going on? I, we don't know. Yeah, but but even so, I think it's uh, it's a point worth thinking about. Is it the case that we're talking about a handful of unrepresentative incidents that are right. widely reported and that we make our judgment about how common this is based on, you know, availability? Like we can think of these incidents and therefore it seems much more common. That's right. And I, I wonder if also it's the case that there are a handful, maybe two handful of, of, let's say, trigger, you know, or, or trigger or controversial speakers. You know, mm -hmm. there's a handful of these people who, for whatever reason, um, uh, whenever they speak, they're, you know, people mobilize. So Jordan Peterson would be one of them. Christine Hoff Summers would be one of them. Um, uh, Charles Murray, clearly. Yeah. Um, ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro. Uh, you know, Milo doesn't speak anymore because he's been disgraced, as he should be. Um, but, you know, he would be, I guess, would have been on that list uh, a year or two ago. Yeah. Um, so maybe you just hear about those people and we're not hearing about all the other, let's say, maybe mildly conservative people uh, or mildly, I said, mildly controversial. Um, maybe there's a Freudian slip, uh, slip there. <laughs> um, who, you know, they don't they don't get harassed. They don't get, uh, you know, uh, deplatformed or anything. So it's really just a few people, maybe. Yeah. What I would love to know is what's the base rate of politically in some way controversial speakers, right? Because when we came up with that number of how many speakers do you think that all universities in the U.S. host per year, you know, that includes everybody. And most of those talks are not going to be in any way political, right? right, right. Or, or they're going to be, you know, politically agreeable to most people on campus. So how many of these, as a proportion of like the, the potential talks that you can imagine being deplatformed, right? Because they upset people. What proportion is there in the template? Yeah, that's, that's another, what we Yeah, that's another really, really good point. I mean, that adds a layer of nuance that I think it may, might be a bit missing. So if, you know, let's say 40,000, 50,000 um, talks, which again, is probably a low number. But if, you know, 90% of those, let's say 80% of those are not political at all. They're boring chemistry talk. They're boring, or boring, sorry, sorry, chemists, uh, you know, not boring at all, exciting. Um, but they're just not, you know, they're just not, a, it's not a topic that's going to get uh, people riled up politically. 
Right. And that's the vast majority, I suspect. Um, and then if you look at the, you know, those topics where maybe there is some sort of political uh, uh, bent, um, it's going to be probably liberal. It's going to be pro and, and therefore uh, non-controversial because at least in um, well, many disciplines, uh, you, you, most, of, most of the faculty are liberal. In fact, they lean left a little bit yeah. or a lot. Um, so they're not controversial by dint of the fact that they that the, the professors and students agree with them. Right. So they're not going to be shouted down. Right. Um, right. So what percentage of actual conservative uh, talks are out there and what, and what percentage of those are controversial? Yeah. Um, so that would be, I guess, the more yeah. fine grained analysis. Yeah. And then one more thing I'd like to know, just uh, looking at these numbers. So 2017, you had 35 disinvitation attempts that would work out to roughly like uh, three a month, right? Um, whereas here, in all of 2018, we're looking at five total. Um, now, uh, small samples, obviously, right. um, but I have to wonder whether this was like 2017, the year, the first year that Trump was in office, is right. maybe unusual. That's right. That's right. So it could be a blip. And I suppose, uh, yeah, well, you're full of wisdom here. Um, I mean, it also might, you know, may help us like uh, add context to some other numbers that we'll talk about in a little bit, mm -hmm. where people are talking about trends in attitudes. Well, are we going to count, you know, you know, trends attitudes starting in 2016, 2017, um, which I think both those years were widely considered kind of strange, odd. Now, I remember 2016, before 2017, 2016 was the worst year ever. Yep. And that's when all these rock stars were dying, I think. David Bowie, Prince... Um, I believe uh, a number of others. I'm forgetting now. Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen. Um, so and it was also the year that, that Trump got elected. So we we've lived through. If you're a certain, you know, you're you're, uh, you're liberal. Um, we've lived through a couple of uh, maybe heavy years. It was tumultuous. For yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So maybe this is actually a good a good point at which to to segue. Um, from speaker disinvitations or uh, deplatforming, which are certainly like that's one kind of way in which you could argue that free speech on campus is being threatened, to some other ways that you might argue that free speech on campus is being threatened. So, uh, one other way is that perhaps uh, conservative, more or even just non-liberal uh, students and faculty don't feel like they can express their views, like that there's a campus on climate where there's certain things that are kind of in the ideological mainstream in the country more broadly that are just not okay to say, right? Where you would experience really serious consequences for for arguing for those views. Right. So what kind of evidence do we have on, on that question? Um, well, the Heter Heterodox Academy has uh, compiled some evidence together. So the Heterodox Academy is a an uh, organization spearheaded uh, by Jonathan Haidt. Maybe there's some, someone else who co-founded it with him, but he's the main one that I know of, at least. Um, and the, the organization here is just, it's trying to uh, promote what they call viewpoint diversity. And the idea here is, given the, the overwhelming percentage of faculty that are liberal, um, can we highlight people who have alternative views, different views, uh, and who might be liberal themselves, but also, you know, are accepting and open to other views and to listening to other views. So they compile some interesting data that I think um, bears on this question, and uh, it's worth digging into it. Also, maybe uh, just to kind of um, make it clear, uh, Yoel and I are, are both members uh, of the Heterodox Academy. I think given our last names, we might even follow one another, I and B, I and Z. Uh, yeah, it's certainly Sorry. possible. I haven't checked. <laughs> I wonder. I'm not sure. <laughs> Last thing starting with I is unusual. Actually. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, right. So the Heterodox Academy has been looking into this and they have a couple blog posts up on their, on their website where they're arguing really pretty strongly that there is a problem in this regard, right? That um, people are afraid to say things that uh, for reasons that uh, those things will be politically offensive on campus and that this is something that especially affects uh, conservative, um, well, they focus mostly on students, not faculty members, right? That's right. Mainly affects conservative students. So how convincing is the evidence for that? Mickey, I know you've been looking at this kind of closely. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, I, I'm interested in this because the, you know there's data now here, so we can actually examine uh, some trends. And, and you all, you're gonna have to fact check me on the trends because I don't actually have the data in front of me. But um, they, they had students and uh, what is it, three thousand or so um, students all over the U.S. Uh, 
answer questions about uh, their perceptions of the climate and their ability to speak their mind, their ability to um, uh, to speak freely. So here's one question that students answered. Um, the climate on my campus prevents some people from saying things they believe because others might find them offensive. Um, so that's one question. Another one is, um, do you think that recent student protests and cancellations of controversial speakers on college campuses are isolated incidents or are they part of a broader pattern of how college students respond to controversial ideas? Um, so, and, and I think the idea here is, okay, let's examine the answers to these questions and examine them uh, year by year. So is there a trend? Are things becoming, are, are, are students finding the, um, the um, climate on campus, you know, uh, more restrictive, less restrictive over time? So, so what does the data say? So the data say that people find the climate a little more restrictive in... So on this uh, this first question that you mentioned, which comes from this uh, Knight Foundation Gallup survey of 3,014 current college students, uh, there is a, a bit more agreement with this statement of in 2017 as compared to 2016. So we're going from an average just eyeballing here of looks like around 55% to an around 60%. Now, given the sample size, that's going to be a significant right. difference. So, so again, that question is, uh, the climate on my campus prevents some people from saying things they believe because, oh, oh man, because others might find them offensive. My, my screen just went <laughs> <upset> there. <laughs> um, so, so that's gone up a little bit. So that's interesting, okay? And and the Heterodox Academy is kind of pointing at this and saying, hey, look, look, there is a, a, a crisis. You know, the attitudes are worsening. You know, people are saying the climate's getting worse. And, you know, if I was to look at that, you know, at its face, I'm like, wow, that's, that is bad, right? So the idea here, I mean, so there's, you know, to give a little context, there's a little bit kind of back and forth with uh, Heterodox Academy uh, saying, you know, that the skeptics who are saying, hey, there is no campus free speech crisis. Um, they're just looking at the wrong years. And you have to actually look at the, maybe the most recent cohort. Um, and that cohort would be, you know, Gene Twenge calls it the iGen generation. This is a generation that um, has known nothing but the internet. Um, and maybe they're especially likely to have been coddled um, and especially likely to be want you know, safe spaces and to be protected from um, violence, you know, quote unquote violent speech. Um, and that's an interesting argument. Uh, my issue with it is where does the year 2016 come from? Um, is that uh, the actual cutoff? Is that an actual cutoff where, you know, that's, that's when they started entering college? Um, is that a cutoff that you kind of you, you look at the data and you make a data contingent analysis saying, hey, this supports our argument and maybe uh, we'll, we'll, we'll create the cutoff over there? Because I find it hard to believe that, you know, this, we, should, we should treat this cutoff seriously. And the reason I, I, I make this argument is, um, you know, Jonathan Haidt, again, who I admire a lot, um, and George Lukianoff wrote this um, well-received uh, essay. I think it's kind of infamous now, um, you know, The Coddling of the American Mind. It's, it's actually, uh, they're publishing it as a book. I think it's coming out uh, the next few months. Um, I'll be looking forward to reading that. And they made the argument that, you know, trends in parenting, trends in, in, in education has led to, you know, you know, the, you know uh, children and then adults to want to be coddled, to want to be protected. Um, that now, the key, though, is that, that that essay was written in 2015. It was written in the fall of 2015. Um, so clearly they're already describing some trend. They're describing a, a trend they're seeing among college students. So that means the trend they saw was maybe from 2014 or even 2013. But if you look at the data from 2013, 2014, 2015, actually um, there's an increase in support for uh, various controversial you know, topics on campus. And it's only when you, you, know, when you kind of slice the data at 2016 that you see a drop. Yeah, that drop might be significant, but is it meaningful? Is it a real drop or is it just, you know, data are stochastic and there's, you know, kind of, you know, ebbs and flows, ups and downs. And I'm not sure if, you know, one year of data um, is enough to say there's a, a serious trend here. Right. You have to be wary of an argument where it's like two data points are making a trend, right? That's so, right. And especially given that those years are unusual years. So the Trump presidency, is, yeah. and <laughs> it's an unusual time. 
in America and everybody's sort of freaking out a little bit. Right. And maybe what we're seeing is a, a temporary response to that. Yeah. And nothing more. That's right. And, and you know, to uh, heterodox academies credit, they say as much. Right. So they say there's not enough data, uh, you know, and it's, you know, we'll leave, we'll leave more data, to, you know, to, 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 to you know, to, to verify this argument a bit more. So they're open about that. I guess I didn't I didn't like, though, that kind of uh, what we might some of us might call salami slicing of the data uh, kind of pinpointing this one, you know, this one kind of like turning point. It might be a turning point. It might be these kind of iGen um, or it might just be nothing. So I, I'm not sure I'd point at that and say this is strong evidence. Yeah. And. You know, this nuance gets lost when you read people who are writing about these data, right? So they, you know, op-ed columnist or whatever, reads the Heterodox Academy blog post, which is, I think, uh, nuanced appropriately. Um, and they kind of pick the thing that makes their argument look the strongest, and they present it without that nuance. And now you have, I would say, maybe a misleading picture of the data. Um, I also think it's interesting to look at um, some of the data that that is reported in these blog posts. So for example, uh, here's a Cato 2017 free speech and tolerance survey. Uh, this is 2,300 respondents. And here, um, what they're showing here is uh, the percentage of respondents who strongly or somewhat favor a uh, instituting a law that would make it illegal to say offensive or insulting things in public about various groups. Uh, and if you break it out by the age category of the respondent, you can see that it, it looks a little bit like there's a trend such that the youngest age category, 18 to 24, is more in favor of laws that would make it illegal to say offensive or insulting things. Um, but if you look at the, the targets, so yeah, certainly um, they're, they're a little bit more in favor of making it illegal to say bad things about immigrants, which is consistent with this like, you know, left-wing story. But they're also more in favor of uh, laws that make it illegal to say insulting things about white people mm. or about military service members, mm -hmm. right? So I, I don't think that Heterodox Academy makes this claim, but I think you often hear this in the context of it's the left that's right. getting, right? And that's not what these data are showing. Right, so this even supports, maybe among right-wing students, and that's not clear, but support for restricting speech that might be hate might be too strong of a word but but, but offensive speech offensive that might speech. yeah offensive speech to all kinds of groups even groups that you know are the majority have lots of power um so that but i mean i think heterodox academy would be fine with that right because they're like hey we're not we're not a, a, a right-wing organization we're not a left-wing organization we're just like any and all opinions should be heard and we don't think restricting speech on the left or the right um is the way to go um so i think they would probably be fine with that, I suspect. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. I, I think, again, it just it speaks to when these results are talked about, you know, more broadly um, by op-ed columnists who have a, a point to make, I, I think there is, there's a distortion that happens where now all of a sudden this is about the intolerant line. Yeah, then you, yeah, you make a good point there. So it, it's often right-wing or more slightly more conservative columnists who are making this point. It's not... Actually, I've seen a few left-wing columnists weigh in, and they're saying, hey, this is, there's not much to this. This is an old story. Um, there's, you know, this, you know, the notion that, you know, some views aren't popular and they don't get the same airtime has been around um, for a long time, and it's not a new trend, uh, necessarily. So uh, it's the right, you know, more the, the, the right side who are saying, uh, right-wingers, who are saying that there's this crisis. But, you, you well, I'm, I'm looking at my beer here, and... Uh, oh, man, it's, you're it's, empty. It's empty. Uh, Why don't we take a quick break and uh, fix that for you? I think we should. Uh, Mickey, do you want to tell the audience what we're drinking now? Yes. Yeah, so we're still uh, staying with, uh, it wasn't called Arts and Crafts, but Collective Arts. Sorry, uh, Collective Arts from, again, Hamilton, Ontario. This beer is called Lunch Money, and mm. um, uh, it's made with Centennial and German Magnum hops. 
I'll, I, I will admit straight up that the reason I bought this beer was because I was attracted to the name. It's a good name. Yeah, Lunch Money. I mean, I, I, as someone who was, uh, was and still is a small, um, <laughs> I felt that, you know... I, Only in stature, Mickey. <laughs> in stature, that's right. But I... Uh, I, you know, experienced some bullying, not too much. I was, I was too much of a badass. I think I, I, I fought, yeah. uh, but I had to fight. You're uh, scrappy. Yeah, I was scrappy. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, lunch money is something that people threatened to take from me. Mm -hmm. um, so now I'm drinking their beer <laughs> <laughs> and let's see what we think of it. Yeah. Also refreshing. I think the hops are nice. I like the hops. Um, yeah. It's, it's, these are a, a good selection of hops. Uh, mm. Hops is what gives the, the beer the bitter taste. Sometimes a, a fresh taste as well. Mm. And this is a, a good one. Mm. Good choices, Mickey. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. So before the break, uh, we were talking about the Campus on Climate for students specifically. So do students feel like they're inhibited from, from saying things, from giving their opinion about political issues. Um, I, we have a tiny bit more data um, in that regard. So here, specific to differences between liberals and conservatives, um, from this Knight Foundation survey that we mentioned earlier, um, it looks like uh, people in general think that political liberals are more free than political conservatives to express their views on campus. Um, but those differences aren't enormous. So on average, people think about 90% of people agree that liberals are able to express their views on campus, and about 70% of people agree that conservatives are able to express their views. So this is kind of what I would expect from uh, the fact that like most college campuses tend to be somewhat liberal. Right. Um, but that you know, there's also a fair bit of like open-mindedness and tolerance for different points of view, right? Like, I, I think at a certain point you have to say like, realistically, would we expect that people who have like a minority opinion are going to be equally comfortable as people in the majority expressing that opinion? Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. I mean, so I think number one, the, the, those numbers are high. Yeah. Right? Even among the conservatives. So yes, yep. there's, a, there's a 20 point difference there, but I think overall it's pretty high. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I think if I was conservative, um, I would still be dismayed by this, right? I, I still feel less free. Um, and uh, there is some some inequity there, right? I mean, why shouldn't I be able to express my feelings or my my beliefs about about certain things? Um, so uh, so I get I get the frustration on their part. Now, if one has an attitude that is uh, objectionable, uh, you know, I was going to say, uh, you know, objectively objectionable, but that's kind of, I think, it's in, in the high of the beholder. It makes sense. Uh, and I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe some conservative attitudes are uh, more object objectionable and are, you know, more judging and, and, and hurtful of, of, of other groups. So maybe it makes sense. Right, right. So uh, there's a little bit more data that we can look at here um, that looks at, you know, specifically, I do... Uh, conservatives versus liberals feel more inhibited about sharing their opinion. Um, and here, uh, remarkably, like everybody's, so regardless of whether you're looking at like very liberals to very conservatives, more than half of respondents say that they've stopped themselves from sharing ideas uh, and opinions in class, but that's a little higher among the people who describe themselves as very conservative. So of the very conservatives, it looks like about 65%, whereas of the very liberals, it looks like a little over 50%. Now, this is for any reason, right? So right. you could say like, well, I didn't, I thought I didn't know what I was talking about right. or whatever, or yeah, you know, pick your reason, right? Right. So, yeah, so I mean, that kind of, the answer to that kind of question, yeah, is multiply determined. And this relates to, uh, I think a question I, I, I listed earlier, but I want to just kind of unpack it a bit. So this is the question. Um, the climate on my campus prevents some people from saying things they believe because others might find them offensive. So I think the the kind of the dominant way to interpret that is, oh, people are self-censoring. People have a political opinion and they're stopping themselves. Um, but is it wrong to you know censor yourself if, you are in fact saying something that is objectionable. I mean, so is it bad to not try to not not want to offend people? And it might have little to do with politics, right? Like, so if I were to say something that's insensitive, that is, you know, only taking my own perspective into account, is it a bad thing that I now kind of hey slow down, stop, and think about what I'm going to say? And you know what? I'm going to rethink that because 
um, that's coming from my perspective and not considering other person's perspectives. Mm -hmm. So I don't see an increase in that as necessarily a bad thing. It could be, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. So it might be that people are just getting nicer or more worried about hurting people's feelings in general. It might be like, if I have an opinion that I really don't like fat people, I'm now like less willing to, to say that. And that's probably a good thing, right? I would think so. I would yeah. think so. I mean, I think there's a, there, there is a fine edge, right? So um, yes, I think you want to, uh, you care about other people. You want to be compassionate and, and kind and caring. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes that, you know, rubs against, you know, uh, you know, certain points of view that might be, you might think are offensive. Now, if they're just offensive for offensive sake and it doesn't have some other, you know, a point they're trying to make, yeah, you should probably not say it. Um, but if you're actually stopping yourself from having an opinion, um, that is valid in most dimensions, but this, this this opinion that also is hurtful because it hurts some segment of the population, uh, then that's when I think, of, you know. There's, there's more place for concern there. Right. So um, this is actually a, a great lead into this last piece of data that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, Heterodox Academy themselves uh, fielded some questions. Now, this is not a representative sample. These are self-selected people who are going to yourmorals.org uh, to fill out questionnaires. So take it w with the appropriate caution. But here, when you ask people about specifically po politically sensitive kind of topics in class, so think about being at your school in a class that was discussing controversial issue about gender, race, politics, et cetera. Um, how comfortable or reluctant would you feel uh, giving your views on this topic? Here, uh, we find that the people who describe themselves as conservative are much more likely to say they'd be somewhat or very reluctant. So around 60% of people who describe themselves as conservative uh, for, uh, just for example, uh, a, question, a politically uh, controversial question on gender versus like it looks like 25% of the people who describe themselves as liberal. So that's a big gap wow, there, that is right? Big. And that's specific to in the classroom. Yeah. Um, so that is troubling, I think. Yeah, that, 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 that is troubling. Um, and I'll... So that, you know, that question was specifically for students, um, but I'll ask you, maybe we should ask ourselves the same question. Have you uh, been at a conference? Have you been at a faculty meeting? Have you been just hanging out like the pub with other faculty? Um, and some political topic comes up and you had an opinion that was not shared by the group. Um, would you share your opinions? Yeah, that's a great question. I So I've been trying to think of is there an example uh, where I've kept my mouth shut because I thought that my opinion would be unpopular politically? I have a terrible autobiographical memory. Um, I forget everything. So I can't remember an example, but maybe that's just because I, I forgot it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do, you know, I mean, I get into Twitter arguments sometimes, right. uh, you know, all among friends, but uh, where I'm willing to uh, take a position that's maybe like less popular right. politically. Uh, so my my good friend Tej Rai and I got in an argument about... Uh, what was the argument about, even? Do you I, remember? <laughs> it was about politics. <laughs> yeah, it was political. And but... I think it was about uh, to what extent conservatives versus uh, liberals. Oh, yeah, it, it was about conservatives and social psychology specifically. And it, he... Um, he gave some reasons for excluding conservatives from social psychology that I thought were not good. Oh, right. The idea here is right. You know, you know, there's such an overwhelming proportion of liberals among social psychologists. Um, should we care about that? Should there, for example, one I think out there suggestion would be affirmative action for conservatives. And I think uh, Tage's perspective is that no, that would be ludicrous because there might be some conflation between. I think ability, skill, intelligence, um, and attitudes. Uh, maybe I'm mis I don't want to misrepresent him too much here. But... I think that's a that's a fair yeah. summary. Yeah. So I mean, that's saying you know those aren't good arguments, and here's the reasons. That's not the most controversial thing you can imagine arguing for on the internet, right? It's not like I was arguing about uh, you know gender differences in STEM or like race and IQ or right. whatever. Right. Um, maybe I'm just. Uh, lucky to not have strong opinions about things that are like super politically controversial. Right. Like I just don't care about race and IQ that right. much. Yeah, I mean that's an issue. I mean I know it's kind of cropped up in the past, well, about a year ago, and then about again a month ago, 
because there were a couple of columns written in the New York Times, and there was like a back and forth with uh, Sam Harris and Ezra Klein. Uh, that's an issue I think is interesting, um, but also I, 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 I'm not particularly interested in that topic. I'm not even sure it's a question worth asking. Um, but um, the question of STEM and, and gender or sex is actually a little bit closer to my heart. Um, so for really the first uh, 10 plus years of my career, I studied a uh, topic called stereotype threat, which is, I, I guess, maybe somewhat controversial now because um, there might be replication issues with it. And I've kind of gone on record saying that, uh, not saying that the phenomenon is not replicable, but saying that I'm just not sure. I, I have questions and I have worries. Um, but regardless of that, um, the topic that, that topic suggests that, you know, one of the reasons there's, there's an underrepresentation of women in STEM is because of, uh, you know, social pressures, environmental pressures that occur in the moment. So maybe the best word is situational pressure, something that happens in the, you know, the test-taking test situation or in the classroom situation where stereotypes become active and people kind of um, freeze up as a result of it. So it's something that I've thought about a, a great deal. And even when I was, um, let's say, uh, a firmer believer of stereotype threat, I never actually thought that it explained all the variants. I, I thought, you know, it might explain at best, a, you know, a small part of the variance. Um, but for me to suggest that and to say, hey, there might be other, reason, other reasons, including, and this is where, you know, one could get into trouble, um, there might be some biological reasons that uh, there are these differences. Now, I'm not saying I necessarily believe this, but um, is it bad to entertain that? Is it bad to say um, that there might be th these differences? And I think I think it is. I mean, even me saying this now, I'm nervous even stating it now. Um, and I think uh, that kind of opinion, is, it, it's hard to express in, a, in an academic context because there's a, there is a correct answer. There's a, there's, a, there's a certain answer that is acceptable and there are other answers that are not acceptable. Um, and here's a case where I think there is some self-censoring going on. And I'm not sure that's great for, for science. I'm not sure it's great for students. I'm not sure it's great for faculty. Mm -hmm. So do you think that's the case, uh, like in these specific areas that touch on these politically or socially sensitive topics? Like I can imagine that, for example, people who are drawn to work on those topics might feel especially strongly that these are problems that really urgently need to be addressed. And therefore, they're the sorts of people who would be maybe most upset or offended by you uh, arguing that, you know, there's other explanations that don't have to do with, uh, you know, discrimination. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, even my own story, my own, I mean, why did I start studying stereotype threat or stigma? And that is, you know, based on my own personal history, based on my, like, you know, so I'm, I'm Jewish and I went to Jewish, uh, um, you know, day school and high school and, you know, just hit and learned a lot about Jewish history, which is a history of, you know, stigmatization and victimization. And um, I kind of was baked into me that, you know, these kinds of uh, group-based judgments and, 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 and treatments of different groups based just on the fact that they're different groups is, you know, it, it leads to really, really bad things. Um, so I was drawn to the study of stigma because of it, and I wanted to understand it. And yeah, I'll be lying if I didn't say I had a preferred answer, uh, that I had a, you know, preferred explanation. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it was, it's good for science. Um, I mean, this might be getting getting us to a different topic a little bit, but you know, you know, for someone to express this opinion can get them fired, right? So Larry Summers, um, uh, who was uh, this is a number of years ago, like ten plus years ago, mm -hmm. president of Harvard. He then went on to be, I think, in the Obama's cabinet, I think, right? Yeah. Um, but he was the president of Harvard at the time. He he gave some infamous speech where he stated that there might be. Um, some, you know, some differences between men and women that are biologically determined that might contribute to you know, some of these STEM differences. And again, I'm not saying I believe this, but he stated this. Um, and I cannot tell you how many, you know, how many times Larry Summers was invoked in, in, in the introductions of papers as like, this is the wrong way of thinking. Right. I, I wrote this, in fact, uh, probably more than one paper. Um, and this is an opinion that's just not allowed. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't necessarily express this opinion. Um, and again, I don't want to say that I'm, I, I believe this, but I think if someone did, um, I think they can state it 
and they should be able to defend their argument and, and state why they believe what, what they believe. And I don't think they should be labeled as a sexist, as a racist, as a, you know, uh, as someone who should be deplatformed. And, and, but if that's happening, and I think there might be a little bit of this, um, it's bad for the, you know, I think for the campus uh, climate, it's also bad for science, right? It's bad for kind of ferreting out truth. Yeah. So are there cases in which, for example, like you're reviewing a paper or you're in the audience in a talk and uh, there's a question that you want to ask that's scientifically relevant, but you feel like you can't ask it because people would be offended or upset? No, not really. I mean, okay. uh, I, maybe it's just because, you know, what I work on now, I don't, I don't I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily working on a controversial or politically charged topic. So, uh, no, I can, you know ask any question that I like and not feel that I need to censor myself. Um, but the question is, like, you know, um, when it is a more politically charged topic. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the person comes to mind, um, I think he, I know he's somewhat polarizing, I think, um, is Lee Jussum, who um, is a social psychologist working at a Rutgers University. Um, and I guess for really decades, he's been working on the topic of uh, stereotype accuracy, the notion that... Um, stereotypes, for the most part, um, you know, are based on more than a kernel of truth. They're based on some, you know, some you know, population variance. Um, there's some truth there. Now, that doesn't mean that um, they're true for everyone in a group. That doesn't mean that all stereotypes are true. But by and large, there's strong support for, you know, stereotype accuracy. And the way he, the way he tells it, he was excluded. Uh, his views were excluded. Uh, his views aren't cited. His views aren't incorporated into into the, the literature. Now, okay, I know all of us want uh, you feel we should be cited more. I mean, that's for sure. So don't take that too strongly. Um, but I think I think we do sometimes. Uh, you know, when we review when we write up our literature review, we're going to selectively cite things. We're going to cite things that kind of jibe with what the message we're trying to say. And if there's a really robust literature saying, hey, stereotypes are accurate. Or at least they're they can be accurate. Um, you know, I think that's that's an important piece of piece of data that that should be incorporated into other arguments. And he suggests that you know his view was kind of he was blackballed or or his views were blackballed. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you know he he's like a, a science refugee in some way, right? And that's you know, but again, he's, he's the N of one. He's just one one person. I'd be worried if that was true. Uh, a broad swath of people. I'm not sure. It might be. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I've argued, I, I've written a paper saying that it's a problem that uh, we uh, social psychologists are so overwhelmingly liberal because, you know, we'll have blind spots in our research, we'll miss interesting questions. Um, so I, I think that's definitely an issue. This seems to me, it's like it's getting a little bit of field of the like free speech thing, right? So like saying uh, it's hard to convince this community of people who are like ideologically committed to X that not X. Yeah, I mean, I believe that and that can be really bad for science, but is that a free speech issue or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's written papers. Lee's written papers. Uh, he's written a book. Written a book. I mean, yeah. So I suppose... No, I'm, he's not being censored. He's just, no. you know, like people don't pay as much attention to that uh, point of view as he believes that they should. Okay, so I think what you're saying is this is a separate issue. So I this think is so. bad for science, but it's not necessarily right. a free speech issue. I don't issue. think it's a free speech issue. Right, because yeah. he's, he's been saying this. He's got a job, well-paying job, um, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Lee. Yeah. No, 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 <laughs> um, Yeah, maybe that's not... Uh, but... Okay, but Lee is unusual, okay? And I'll say mm -hmm. why he's unusual. Lee's unusual because he speaks his mind, mm -hmm. okay? He actually does speak his mind. But now let's say you have someone uh, who has the same views as Lee, but is scared that his views will not be acceptable, and as a result, will not, they'll have, he'll have a harder time publishing, or she'll have a harder time publishing, um, you know, pre-tenure, for example, and therefore, you know, changes, you know, the, the, you know what they study um, mm -hmm. and doesn't ask the questions, um, uh, legitimate questions that could be asked. I mean, I can I can imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's true. Um, I would be surprised if that hadn't happened. Um, and I think there uh, the the fact that we are so politically Uniform might not be the right word, but there, there's certain um, 
kind of politics in in social personality psych that are that are quite rare you know so like how many people who consistently vote republican are you going to find like very few right yeah, yeah um and it, so we start getting this idea of like views that are perfectly mainstream uh within anyway american culture being sort of beyond the pale so so when i uh your slammers uh my former colleague at Tilburg and i uh, ran this study about the politics of social psychologists, and and we had some questions that where we asked people explicitly about like would you discriminate in these cases, like in hiring, for example. Um, and we also allowed people to write comments, and those comments were really interesting. So one person wrote something along the lines of, "I would never want somebody uh, as a colleague who opposed a woman's right to choose," and that, like it or not, is a view that's held by about half of Americans, right, right. describe themselves as right. pro-life. So you are saying that you would be unwilling to work with half of America. Right. I think that is crazy. Um, right. And that sort of like dogmatism, you get that when you're in sort of an echo chamber right. where everybody agrees with you. And that, I think that does, I, I kind of, it motivates some of these kind of deplatforming and disinvitation type um uh, beliefs where where you see these things that are, you know, in the conservative mainstream as being, uh, I don't know, like white supremacy or fascism, right? And right, right. Labeling something that is actually a mainstream view as uh, an extreme view. Yeah, because, you know, you, you make that judgment based on your reference point of like, who's around you? Um, and when everybody who's around you is, you know, center left or, or more left than that, then then you get kind of a distorted picture. Right. So again, to make sure we're kind of staying on topic. So this is uh, uh, clearly a problem. And the way it bleeds into the free speech issue is that uh, people are smart. People people, people can, 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 can get the lay of the land. They understand that their views are not acceptable. Uh, even though they believe this their, their entire life, they know if they say it, well, they might not get a job or they might not get tenure. They might not have friends. Um, as a result, they actually stop speaking mm -hmm. their minds mm -hmm. um, and that you know seems to be a yeah that seems to be a problem right so the the one last thing that i um i wanted to talk about is so we've been sort of talking about views that i think we both agree are um acceptable to express even if we personally disagree with them but then i think there is a question of like do you draw the line anywhere mm -hmm. so as a, a university are there some views that are so reprehensible or so far outside the mainstream that we're justified in saying we're not going to host a speaker who's expressing those views. Yeah. Like, where do you draw that line? Yeah. So, I mean, I, so I'm, I'm Canadian uh, and in Canada, we have, uh, we actually have hate speech laws. So we, there is a line that is drawn somewhere. Um, I know this is, I think, anathema to many Americans who are, are, are Free speech is a very, very high value, sacred value. And I think it's also that sacred value here in Canada. But again, we do draw this line. Um, now, the line is, I think, a very, very, uh, the bar is very, very high for what we would define as hate speech. And I believe um, in Canadian law, hate, hate speech is limited to speech that is, um, in, a, in essence, you know, condoning genocide, condoning um, uh, killing, violence, uh, and not just necessarily one one person or two people but like you know uh masses of people so that would be considered illegal and in fact uh people have sat in prison for espousing these views and not many mind you is because the bar is so high most of the speech that i think um e most people would find objectionable would not be considered uh, hate um but when it does cross that line you know occasionally you get uh, people sitting in jail hmm so if I were to say something like, uh, we're never going to have world peace until we do something about the Jewish problem, does that count as hate speech by that standard or no? Um, okay, so you're pointing at a, a, at a group of people who you think are you know, causing problems, um, but you're not necessarily, you're implying violence, mm -hmm. um, but you're not necessarily inciting it. Uh, so I do not think, I, I'm not a legal scholar by any means, um, but uh, I do not think that would cross the line. 
Um, I think it would have to be, you know, an explicit endorsement of violence. So if you said we need to kill all the Jews, mm-hmm. I think that that's that's a, that's a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you would be, uh, yeah, you could be you, you could be found guilty of, you know, uh, according to these hate speech laws, and in fact, you know, sitting in prison um, up to was it five or ten years? I forget now. Mm-hmm. So I, and again, I know this is a kind of a, a really uh, problematic concept uh, uh, for for Americans. Um, because it leaves us in this really, really thorny problem, a difficult problem. Like, how do you find what hate is? And who judges what hate is? Um, the way the law is written, I think it's clear, right? I think it's, you know, it's violence. And it's also, they even use the word genocide. Um, mm-hmm. And I, don't, I just don't think that that line is crossed very often. So most even hateful speech does, wouldn't, wouldn't qualify as hate speech. Um but yeah, you still need a kind of a, a, a tribunal to, to to decide what that what that is, and if you don't trust the judges, I think you're you'd be worried about that law. Yeah, well, I don't think that that law is, is all that far from the mainstream of what Americans think. Uh, so, I think the latest uh, polling that I saw is around half of Americans who think that hate speech is not protected speech, um, and it's. Honestly, like what you describe is not that far from the American legal standard where it's, a, you know, a, a direct incitement to violence is not protected. Right. So if, if I uh, say something expecting that it will incite you to violence and it's fact likely to do so immediately, um, then that wouldn't be protected under the First Amendment. Um, so, th- th- you know, maybe you could there would be a little bit of a distinction in terms of like something that might be prohibited under the Canadian system be like. You know, I'm not directly saying kill these specific Jews. I'm just mm-hmm. saying we're going to have to kill the Jews eventually, which I, I think that would be protected in the U.S. Right. right. So, I mean, so I, I remember growing up learning about this, this, at least for me, as again, growing up in a very Jewish environment uh, of this um, this case of this uh, school teacher in Saskatchewan. Uh, his last name was Keegstra, uh, who was kind of really tested this, this Canadian law. And he was a Holocaust denier. Um, now, I don't know. Did, did, I mean, so denying the Holocaust, um, is that enough to, uh, to kind of say? I don't I mean, see the incitement to violence. Yeah, I don't see it unless he's saying, you know, more of this is needed, I suppose. When it didn't happen, <laughs> except, <laughs> except we have to do more right, of it. Exactly. It didn't happen to begin with, and we need to get rid of them anyways. <laughs> <Right. laughs> but he did, you know, he did sit in prison for, for, for a number of years yeah. um, for this. Um, so I know it's, it, it, it's kind of a sticky issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, as an American and more of a free speech absolutist, I guess, um, the the worry is always in the interpretation. Right. Right. And the U.S. standard, um, which is from a Supreme Court case called Brandenburg v. Ohio, like it, it's very clear. It, I mean, it's ex- extremely limited, but it's quite clear in terms of what's prohibited on the basis of incitement versus not. Right. And the worry is when it's a more nebulous concept, like inciting hate a against a group, that there's these cases that seem sort of like these ambiguous judgment calls, and, and that's kind of, that that feels bad, right? That you don't really know, well, Holocaust denial doesn't seem like it should, but then if you, maybe you add in that, you know, the Jews it's are- also a school teacher, right? So does that, does that change things a little bit? So teaching children the Holocaust didn't exist, that this is a- you know, Well, you could get conspiracy. fired for that, certainly. Yeah, you, right. You, couldn't go to prison. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, maybe I'm speaking out of ignorance here because I, we should probably see what else you know he said. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but nonetheless, I mean, I think this is you know I I don't I, I suspect he would not have sat in prison yeah. uh, if he lived in uh, what would be the state just south of Saskatchewan. I have no idea. North Dakota, maybe. I'm going to guess North Dakota. <laughs> Sounds reasonable. Yeah. Um, okay. So so yeah, I um, I I think maybe that the, there's more of a distinction um, in people's minds than there actually is in, in practical terms, right? Like, how often is it the case that the people are prosecuted here under hate speech? Extremely speeches? rarely. Yeah. yeah, it hardly ever happens. I mean, there's like a probably less than 10 ever. Right. Mean, it just it doesn't happen. I mean, the, the bar is so high that pretty much most speech is protected. Um, yeah, yeah. And, 
And, you know, as you can see from looking at this, you know, history of disinvitations and deplatforming and stuff, there's plenty of non-legal sanctions that you can encounter for saying things that people don't like, right? So sort of almost the least of your problems is the government might come along. And right, okay, so I mean, but that's a slightly different, uh, 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 again, metric, right? So we were talking about free speech crisis on campus. So what if someone, again, not to the, to the, to the extreme level of, of hate um, on campus, but um, is there ever a time? So what about Miley yeah. So he was a guy, um, I think probably most people know who he is. Um, I think mean, the best way to describe him is, is a troll. Mm -hmm. I'm a live troll, not just an internet troll. I mean, he would just say outrageous things to get uh, to get attention. I, I mean, essentially, to monetize, uh, to make money, I, I would imagine. Um, I'm not sure he believed half the things he said. Um, but he said lots of disparaging things, racist things, um, things that got, you know, people, um, I think probably the biggest example for me in my mind is, uh, I think it's Leslie Jones, who's an actress on, in the, in, in the Ghostbusters uh, reboot. Um, I think she, he picked on her and, and she was just like, felt terrible. I think she quit Twitter because of like all the, all the people who went after her because of Milo essentially. And he was invited, uh, again, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago now, uh, to give a talk at uh, Berkeley. And the Berkeley students rioted. I mean, they just like, you know, literally set fire to cars and you know, just you know, looted things, just acted poorly in, in my estimation. But at the same time, I cannot stand Milo. I mean, if there's someone to deplatform, it would be him. Um, so, I mean, what do you think about what do you think about that? Uh, I think that reaction is exactly what he wants. Yeah. I mean, that like trolls love it when you respond to them. So like if he had just given his talk to his audience of 20 people and nobody had done anything, I think he would have gone home very disappointed. And this way he goes home happy. So, right. yeah. Do you think he should have been invited? I wouldn't have invited him. I, <laughs> if I had been advising the group who invited him, I would have said, think about maybe inviting somebody who's more who has something more to contribute. Um, but you, as a public university, I mean, it's clear that Berkeley then, once he was invited by a student group, had the obligation to, to host right. him. See, I must admit, I might draw the line. I might say that <laughs> there's no point to Milo Yiannopoulos. There's literally nothing good that comes out of him. Um, I suppose there's a lot of people with nothing good that comes out of them, but it's just frivolous. But, but, but what he says is hateful as well. I don't know. I, I, I'm conflicted about that. I, I feel, I don't think he would, I don't think he exceeds that threshold, that really high threshold to be hate speech, but he rubbed, he, he comes really close. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, there, you know, as, as a private school, you have a lot more leeway to, to say this guy doesn't add anything. Right. So as a, as a public school, your hands are pretty much tied that, uh, you know, if the speaker is invited uh, by a student group, then you don't have a choice but to allow them to speak. Right. Yeah. So, and I think you're also you're also right. This is like this. You know, the the the, the deep platforming, the uh, heckling, the, the 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 screaming, all it does is it amplifies. It actually does the opposite of yeah. what you know these protesters want. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you could argue that it benefits both sides. Right. So like Antifa gets to look like uh, they're badasses right. and Milo gets to wave a bloody shirt and everybody wins. Right. right, um, right. That's true. Yeah. But, it, you know, I mean, I am I'm a little skeptical about sort of like Milo is like an obvious troll, but even somebody like uh, Tamler's stepmom, Christina Summers, uh, is a little bit trollish, you know, like I feel like she feeds off of that controversy. Yeah. She provokes. She's yeah. trying to provoke. Yeah. Uh, not clear. Well, maybe we'll talk about this at some point in the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, well, well, we maybe kind of, uh, ending uh, where we started. Well, Jordan, Jordan Peterson would be a good example yeah. where I do not, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know enough about it, but I suspect he would not be where he is today without the outrage that was produced at, um, at his, you know, when he made this video. Yeah. Right. So if it weren't the protests, if it weren't the mass outrage yeah. uh, in vivo, on yeah. I, 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 you know, on the internet, he would just be he would still be the uh, um, obscure psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. The obscure faculty member at the little known <laughs> University of Toronto. That's right. Which makes us like essentially nothing. Sub obscure. <laughs> Sub obscure. Right. <laughs> we aspire to obscurity. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Um, I think that is what got him that initial attention. 
uh, that raised his profile, that uh, started people listening to him, being interested in what he had to say. Yeah. Um, and that's not to like take a position one way or another on the like value of what he has to say, but it's just like, how did people find out about him? It's right. because people were mad about what he said about uh, trans people and pronouns and so on. And like, was he doing that deliberately? Like, I have no idea, but it certainly like worked for him. Yeah, it certainly worked. I mean, yeah. I think he, at some point, he actually admitted uh, to monetizing the left. He, he admitted to monetizing outrage on the left. And he went on um, Joe Rogan's podcast, which I think might be the most popular podcast around, um, and said as much. Uh, so, you know, maybe he stumbled onto this accidentally, which I think, he's, I think he did. I, I, yeah. I do think so. Um, but he realized, hey, you know, all those all those people complaining about me, that actually increases the number of followers I have, increases right. the number of people who donate to me. Right. Um, it makes me put money in my pocket. Um, so, I mean, deep platforming is not just, you know, in terms of value, in terms of like a, an affront to certain, you know, uh, values. It's also not effective. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hostile partisanship, right? It's like this person pisses off people I don't like, and therefore I like them and I'm willing to give them money to keep doing that, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe we should stop doing that. <laughs> but but although, although at the same time, I think, you know, going back to what we started, it's prob probably not happening that often. Um, but, you know, if you have the inclination to do it, it might... It might not be... You might think about, like, who's being served by that. Right. You might think about, do you want to enrich the person you hate? Yeah. Um, I suspect not. So maybe maybe just, like, let them speak and uh, ask, them, ask them tough questions. You know, listen to them and say, hey, you know, you said this thing about, uh, about X, Y, and Z. Um, not Z. Uh, let me challenge you. Let me let, let me let you know. Here's my retort. Here's what I think about why uh, I think you might be incorrect. Um, and, and let there be a dialogue. And I, I think at the end of the day, um, intelligent dialogue will win more hearts and minds than um, burning cars. As good as that feels, I mean, I, I you know, I would like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be fun. I'd be actually, you want to you want to stop recording and go out and burn some cars. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know that axe throwing is now a kind of big thing. People throw yeah. axes at walls. Well, yeah. you know, why can't there just be a controlled burning of cars? Car burning. <laughs> Car yeah. burning. That's the next big trend. Yeah, I, I think we should. You know that that would be or throwing televisions off roofs is another. Uh, I actually did. I've done that multiple times. Really? Um, I I did. I have yet to throw a single television <laughs> off a roof. Lots of fun. Yeah. Well, now they're flat screens. It's, yeah. It's, no, it's now. <laughs> yeah. That's sad. That is true. All right. I think this is a good place to end it. Yes. Um, well, thank you very much for listening. Um, we, we hope you'll join us again. In the meantime, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at at four beers pod. That's the words for beers pod all spelled out. Um, add us with any uh, questions, topics you'd like to talk us, talk us to talk about. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and uh, I haven't, haven't even ears. finished my second beer. <laughs> um, or or uh, reactions uh, to this episode. And uh, Mickey, do you have any closing words? Yeah, tell us. Tell us where we're wrong. Tell us where you're... If you were offended by anything, you, you know, we said, like, let us know. I mean, we, we're going to tell you why you should not be offended. But uh, we, we're actually... I think we're very receptive to any listener feedback. Um, actually, should be fun. I mean, I think it would be fun to have some interactive uh, kind of uh, interaction with uh, people who are interested in what we have to say. Yeah, I, I love to be told when I'm wrong. So go to town. Nothing fires me up more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Till next time. All right. See ya. Cheers. Bye.